jump into the text, and uh, then we'll pray. If you'll stand for the reading of God's Word. Our scripture reading for today comes out of Ezekiel 37, starting in verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied and as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews upon them and flesh came upon them and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for for what you have done for Icon Church over the last year. You have given us new people, you've given us new leaders, you've given us what it takes for us to make it into the future and to not just make it, but to actually thrive in many ways. And we receive that even as we said in that prayer, as your faithfulness toward us. We thank you that we get to look toward to a new year with great sense of expectation. And today, as we talk about not just, not necessarily the vision of what this year is, but more the the tone of what this year should be, I ask that you would give us altogether a sense of hunger, a sense of desire for what you want to do in Icon, what you want Icon to be this year, to not not just roll around and pull up to December 31st at the end of this year and still be here but to actually be more alive, more dependent on your Holy Spirit, more empowered by your Spirit, and seeing the ways that your power is demonstrated through us to this great city. And so today, as as we think about the desperation of our city, the ways that our own spiritual lives often need renewal, God, would you ignite in us a desire, help us to have high expectations this year, not for what we will do, but for what you will create in us and make us to be. Would you do that for us? Would you unite your power with my weak words and cause a sense of hunger and desire for more of you? In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite things to do is to introduce people to Seattle. And this week specifically, I've had uh, my entire family up here from Dallas, uh, and we spent the last few days at a cabin out in the sticks in Duval, and it was beautiful. The snow really helped. Going snowboarding was great. And anytime I, I, I get to show people the wonders of this place, 
I'm reminded of, of my first trip up here, and, and specifically, I, re- I remember the flight out of Seattle that first time. Seattle, from the air, is unlike anything else. To see the, the Cascade Mountains stretching north to south, painting that landscape with white caps, and to see that that Cascade Range is, is bookended by two massive peaks, Mount Baker to the north and then Mount Rainier to the south, it is beautiful. And then you look to the west and you see the Olympic range, a smaller and maybe less impressive range, but it's it's at least accented with the waters of the Puget Sound weaving in between all these beautiful islands. And then you see the skyline itself of Seattle. Beautiful. I've I've not yet found one angle of downtown that is not amazing. Houses painted on the hills, boats out on Lake Union. It's a place of wonder and beauty, and I love introducing people to that beauty. And yet, when I introduce people to Seattle, I don't just get to wax poetically about the beauty of this place. Like this week, at some point, I have to take those people into downtown, (laughs) or around the central district, or really anywhere else in the city. And when I do that, I have to start explaining Seattle's problems. You see, I I, I know something now that I couldn't have known or didn't know on that first flight out of Seattle. It, it It was easy for me then to be captivated by the beauty of this place on that flight out because I wasn't yet aware of exactly what the desperation and pain of this city was. I could just Think about the beauty of the mountains and the beauty of the skyline and look at the Puget Sound, wholly unaware of what was actually going on on those streets. I was unaware of the emaciated man hunched over whose arms show the track records of addiction. I was unaware of those multitudes of women over there on Aurora beckoning dangerous men to take advantage of them so that they can pass along the money to a pimp and hope to get just enough to survive. Unaware of the single man or woman, alone in their small yet expensive apartment, who on paper seems like they have everything, but inside is deeply alone and detached as this big city whirls around them. The the, the pain of those people who would add themselves to that ever-growing Seattle statistic of suicide. As I looked on at the skyline of Seattle, I was unaware that at that moment, there was a man sitting at his office working his life away. His family dejected and bitter because of the lack of relationship that his big boy tech job demands. Being awakened to such pain and desperation, such such loneliness and need, I think, if we really see it, should lead us to, to ask this question. Has God left Seattle? Has God left Seattle? Now, I know you're, you're all really good theologians here, and you would never entertain such a foolish question, but for me, the question can be a pretty persistent one, actually. When you look at the the ways in which sin runs rampant throughout our city, with no barriers, seemingly, of common grace, the question of God's commitment to Seattle 
rises to the top? Has he given up on this city? And like I said, you know, we Christians, we, we know that God has not left this city or given up on it. We know that mentally. But what would it take? Here, here's a question. What would it take for that true thought about God's continued commitment to the people of Seattle? What would it take for that to move from just a mental ascent of something you believe? Sure, God's not left Seattle. Into something that's actually demonstrated in real life in this city. What would it take, what, what would need to happen in order to not just say with our theological minds that God has not left Seattle, but to demonstrate that God has not left Seattle? Here's what I think the, our answer should be. What would it take to demonstrate that God is still at work in this desperate and painful city? The church at its best. In order for this, the, these Christians and non-Christians in this city to see that God has not left Seattle, I think it requires the church in Seattle to, to be at its best. And yet, e- even that answer provides us with another question. What is the church at its best? What does that even mean? When the church is firing on, on all cylinders... When the church is something that that pleases the heart of God and attracts the attention of those who are outside, what is it actually doing? What is it embodying for the church to be at its best? I want you to think about that real quick. What would be your answer to that question? What would be the church at its best? Is the church at its best when it has a, an, it's able to start a new campus. When the pews are always full and, and finding an empty seat gets harder and harder every week, is that the church at its best? Is the church at its best when it's financially stable and has a permanent place to meet and gather? That sounds wonderful. But is that the church at its best? Is the church at its best when it's leading the protests for social justice and doing real, effective advocacy on behalf of the marginalized? Or even, is the church at its best when people are actually coming to Christ and when those baptismal waters are actually stirring? Is that the church at its best? My answer is none of those, actually. All of those are are, are branches of what it would look like for the church to be at its best, but there's a deeper root system that actually defines the church at its best. What is that? Well, I I want you to pay attention, so I'm not going to give you that just yet. So, first, what I want to do to lead us toward an answer is to look at a few major themes here in this important Ezekiel passage. And and what we're going to do is kind of peer through this text to see if we can't have our eyes focused in on what it should be, uh, what we should be as a church. And just as like a a caveat, there are two times a year, uh, Vision Sunday, which is today, and then Anniversary Sunday, where I just get to share with you what is on my heart. Like sermon series, obviously those things are on my heart, um, but, but these are unique opportunities for me to share what I think God really wants to move in us. And I've found uh, from Anniversary Sunday that when that happens, when I get that opportunity, I tend to rant, okay? So give me, 
Just humor me, okay? It'll be fine. All right, let's jump in. Let's, let's look at this Ezekiel passage and, and slowly zero in on what it means for the church to be its best. Now, the, the text in Ezekiel starts off with a, a grotesque scene. Uh, Ezekiel has the unfortunate privilege of, of seeing God's point of view, and what he sees is repulsive, a, a valley of bones. Now, when the, te- when the text says valley, it's really trying to get us to, to, to really understand the, the massive size of this pile. It's not just a, a small valley in between hills, but a valley. Think of Snoqualmie Valley. Everything from Carnation to Duval to Snoqualmie to North Bend filled with dry bones. And more than that, more than just the size of this grotesque scene, the bones are what Ezekiel describes as very dry. The, the, the bones are, are bleached by the sun because of a, a long period of exposure. These people have been dead for a long time. What this vision is trying to depict for us is utter desolation. Whoever these great many of bones belong to, they have been dead for a long time. And in the midst of this scene, God asked what is a strange question to Ezekiel. He asked this, son of man, can these bones live? Now, the Old Testament, it has a few stories of of resuscitation. Even uh, Elijah and Elisha have these stories where people who were previously dead were revived or resuscitated back to life. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. That's a mesmerizing thing. But those people, was God, was God reviving the recently dead? In this scene, there would need to be a power to not just resuscitate someone, but to resurrect a valley of dismembered, dry bones. And so Ezekiel kind of punts the question back to God, right? He had the, he had the, the knowledge to not deny God's ability to do this, but he didn't yet have the faith to believe it. So he bounces it back to God. Only you know, God, if these bones can live. And so God graciously overlooks his lack of faith and and tells him to start preaching to the bones to come back together. And as Ezekiel does this, there's this great rattling sound as femurs and tibias click back together. And on top of that, there's bones and there's tendons and muscles and flesh. This previously stacked high valley of very dry bones has all of a sudden become people again. You can recognize them as human beings. And yet, even them, there's still a problem. Did you listen to the way even the, the text reads? It says, right over here, in in verse 8, And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. It's it's almost like Ezekiel sees this great miracle of, of bones coming back together, and muscles coming on that, and skin on that. But what was previously an indistinct pile of dry bones has now just turned into a valley of lifeless corpses. It's still not a beautiful scene. These bodies will need breath, and so Ezekiel is told to preach about the breath of God. 
language for the, the Holy Spirit, to, to enter these bodies again and bring about actual life rather than just reconstructed corpses. And so he does, and so it happens. First, a valley of bleached bones, then a valley of reconstructed corpses, and now finally, a valley of living human beings that constructs what Ezekiel calls an exceedingly great army. That's a weird scene. <laughs> the Bible is weird. What is this about? What, what's actually going on here, and what's, what's the point of this great vision that God gives to Ezekiel? I think many of us might read this vision, and upon seeing the, the language of desperation and dry bones, think that this text is about how, how God can take those who are in the world who are spiritually dead and bring them to life through faith in the gospel. That's how this text is so often preached, that there's dead people out there, and God can resurrect them if they would only believe in the gospel, which is true. But the point of this text is not about the people who are outside. We should resist that temptation. We see the valley of dry bones, and maybe our, our mind begins to wander back to that desperation of Seattle that I mentioned at the beginning. But the need for new spiritual life in the outside world is not the point of this text. Just a few verses later, God actually identifies for Ezekiel who these dry bones had belonged to, the Israelites. It says that this valley, I mean, look down at verse 11. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. It's the dead people of God who God wanted to deal with. It was not the spiritually dead of the world outside, but he wanted to bring new life to his own people. The people of God need renewal. The people of God need revival and resurrection. You see, when, when God wants to do something, and this is important for us to zoom in on, he always deals with his people first. God is not interested in bypassing the, the spiritually dank and dingy condition of his people in order to just go get some new people alive out in the world. No, if God wants to do anything in the world, he starts with his people. He starts with doing a work with them. And the way that he often deals with his people first is what is exemplified for us in this vision. Renewal and resurrection. Before God wants to do anything in Seattle, before God wants to address even those problems that I spouted off with this city, he first wants to get his people alive. He first wants to wake them up to new spiritual life. And this is because so often the people of God are the, are the worst example of spiritual vitality. We're so, I said it, dank and dingy. Meanwhile, you, you look out in the world and you see people more vibrant in their commitment to Eastern and New Age religion 
than Christians are to their own faith. They seem more vibrant in their commitment to auras and yoga and all, the, all these kind of things. Meanwhile, Christians seem dank and dingy. Whether due to our life circumstances or even our habits or our relationships, we are so often on spiritual life support. Just, just like a small flicker of a pulse, but no animation of real life. And that is not what God wants. God wants his people alive and breathing, up and walking in their spiritual life. And friends, to reference that original question of the church at its best, this is the basic answer. The church is at its best not when the pews are full, not when the offering is large or when the causes are championed, but the church is at its best and can actually do some things in a hard city like Seattle when it is spiritually vibrant and alive. There's something happening in them because the power of God's spirit is working in them. God desires for his people to be alive vibrant in their faith. And God wants to, to demonstrate his power by resurrecting his people toward that end. God's power is able to accomplish his purposes. If he wants to do something, he can do it. And here in Ezekiel, one of the things we see that he wants to do, again, is create in his people a renewal of spiritual life that leads to some actual activity and demonstrations of his glory. Friends, let, let me tell you, it is my fear as your pastor that our church will slip away into just complacency, slip away from this desire of God into complacency. So often a community of faith I would say almost especially a community of faith like ours that has made it through some really large barriers over the last year, so often they slip into what you could call prayerless management. It just seems like it's enough to just make it. It's a wonderful thing that we've made it through 2021. If you're new to Icon, I'd love to share with you why. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing, but it is not enough. We should long for spiritual life, and yet so often we just kind of manage our spiritual life together, and we attend Sundays, and we maybe go to community groups, and we maybe give ourselves to spiritual practices just enough to continue to feel guilty, but never enough to actually feel like there's real change happening. All the while, God is at the edge of his seat, waiting for us to become hungry enough to seek him waiting for us to move on past this spiritual munchies stage where we just nibble on the things of God. Wanting us to move forward into feasting with great hunger in ways that actually manifest itself in seeking God. Prayerless management of our church or of our own personal spiritual lives is not enough. 
It's not enough. I hope you want more than to just make it. A church that just makes it is, like, is, is just like a frozen waterfall. There's, a, there's great shape of movement, but no actual movement. Things look like they may be hap- that something happened at some point, but the waters have stopped flowing. No real movement at all. Friends, I don't, I don't want that for this year. I don't want that for us this year, to just simply make it to the end of the year. I, I look back at the icon stat sheet of 2021, and I'm impressed and encouraged, but I still am left longing. I see that dozens of people, dozens of new people got connected with Icon this year. They committed themselves to this local community of faith. I see that $13,000 is gonna go to UGM. I see that over the year, over $50,000 was given to church planting. I see sermon series and forums, Icon group curriculum. But what I also see is zero baptisms. Does that, does that bother you like it does for me? I, I, know, I know Seattle's a hard place, but so often we use the difficulty of Seattle as a crutch so that we don't have to be a Christian in public. And you see, it bothers me, not just because the, the baptismal waters are still. Again, the, the stirring of baptismal waters is just a result of the church at its best. It bothers me because it leads me to believe, or at least to suspect, that our spiritual life together at Icon Church is not as vibrant and therefore driving as it should be. A church that is not truly alive is never going to attract the walking dead of Seattle. God wants new life for his people. Not to just make it, but to actually exist with some vibrancy, a a, a pulse of spiritual life. And friends, that's the vision for this year. Today's less vision casting than it is tone setting. To invite you into what I think God wants to lead us toward for this year. That's the vision for the year. Spiritual life. And with the opportunity... And even the invitation by God, as we see in this Ezekiel text, into spiritual renewal, what can we actually do? If the church at its best is what it's going to take to reach Seattle, and if the church at its best means that it is spiritually alive and vibrant, how do we actually get there? What are some things that we will give ourselves to this year in order to provide spaces for that life to begin to flicker back? Let me explain it by sharing a phrase, okay? You still with me? We good? Ooh, okay, thanks, Paolo. You need to sit up here so I can hear you, man. Yeah. Yeah, who's that? Let me, let me share a phrase. So Richard Lovelace wrote a book in 1979 called The Dynamics 
of uh, the dynamics of spiritual life and evangelical theology of renewal. And by the way, if you love Tim Keller, you love Tim Keller because Tim Keller loves Richard Lovelace. Uh, So many of his ideas that he has came directly or indirectly from this book. It's a fantastic book. And in it, as he's talking about renewal and spiritual life in the people of God, he gives this phrase, kind of this, this moniker that he has for spiritual vibrant life. Live orthodoxy. Now, I know I just lost a lot of you because I said orthodoxy. And you think, oh, my gosh. We're going to talk about theology. Well, let's talk about the first word first then, okay? The first word in that phrase of, of live orthodoxy, orthodoxy is meant to express the place of the Holy Spirit bringing actual life. So when we, when we talk about the spiritual vibrancy, we are talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is, is not, a, not a force, not a thing, not a vibe, but a person in the Trinity who is the expression and channel of God's power in action. And we see that, again, in the Ezekiel text. The bodies don't come alive until the breath, which in the, in the Greek is actually the same word used for the Holy Spirit, enters into them and brings new life. But the problem of talking about the Holy Spirit is that so many of us get nervous as soon as we start talking about him. We have, we have ideas in our head about what the Holy Spirit does, and we're worried that people are going to pass out or get knocked down. We have such hesitations around the Holy Spirit. But friends, that is wholly unnecessary. Because the Spirit of God, is, he is good. <laughs> that should go without saying, but it's got to be said In today's church, the Holy Spirit of God, he is good, and we should welcome him, plead for him to come into our life together. We should want him. There's no other way that we can really do this thing as a church. Do you understand how much, man, I'm going to get, I don't want to get too charismatic on you guys, it's first Sunday of the year. Do you understand how much spiritual warfare there actually is in Seattle? Like, do you really feel it? Maybe the reason people get so depressed here is not just the weather. Maybe there's a a sense of lowliness and loneliness that has way, doesn't have only to do with the way that people feel disconnected here. You know, just two miles up the street over here in Capitol Hill, There's a sex shop called Ritual. And it's a sex shop that sells sex toys specifically for the purpose of satanic rituals. And you think that we can just make this thing by coming to Sunday services and attending our community groups every now and then? We're going to need power. We're going to need the Spirit of God working in us to bring us alive and to help us actually be continuously spiritually vibrant. And so this year, on that first word of live orthodoxy, live, we are going to actively seek the Holy Spirit's power and work here in us at ICON. This year, I am going to consistently push you into prayer. (laughs) Because remember, remember, our value series, prayer precedes power. 
I'm going to, to call you to greater dependence and expectation on what the Spirit of God can do in your life. I'm not going to let this go. <laughs> we need the Spirit of God. Without him, I, I just don't know where we go from here, how we actually become this church that is alive. And so this year, the, the, one of the pieces of that live orthodoxy vision is to provide spaces for you and opportunities like nights of worship and quarterly prayer meetings and classes on prayer and who the Holy Spirit is, where we will together seek the, the presence and the power of the Spirit of God. And I just want to, I want to say at the beginning, it's okay to have hesitations about that. Nothing's going to get weird we're just gonna ask God to help us, to keep us alive spiritually. It's okay to have hesitations, but don't push away from the table. To push away from the table of the doctrine and work of the Holy Spirit is to push away from orthodoxy. But also, to that word orthodoxy, Richard Lovelace includes that word in that little moniker for spiritual vibrancy. And that's because the Spirit of God does not work apart from what God has established and revealed as true. The Spirit of God does not bring new life to, to muddy and ambiguous thoughts or affections about God. He, he animates us and renews us in the areas of truth. And again, we even see that in the Ezekiel text. It's not until the frame of the body is constructed that the Spirit of God comes into it to bring new life. We have to have a frame of what is true, of what is orthodox, in order to see the Spirit of God at work in us. It's not enough for us to just say, Holy Spirit, come. We, we should know who he is. We should, we should know what he does. We should know the ways that he exalts Jesus. We should know the ways that the Father sends him. We should have a solid theology of what we actually believe so that when the Spirit of God comes, it, he animates something that's real, that's solid, that's deeper than goosebumps. It's not enough for us to just feel like we feel the Holy Spirit. We have to have truth with that. The Holy Spirit is not about, the Holy Spirit is not your sentimental therapist. He is the one who wants to come animate the truth of God in you and ignite real longing and fire of love for God. And so to do that this year, this month we're kicking off Icon Institute, which I'm so excited about. We're gonna have monthly classes on different areas of theology so that we can know what we believe. We need to know what we believe. And even some of our sermon series that we're gonna do this year, starting next week, we're gonna do Jesus the Great Philosopher. What is Jesus' great vision for the good life that he provides in the Sermon on the Mount? And then we're going to do Revelation after that, after Easter, which is going to be bonkers. Um, but we'll make it through. But we're not doing it so that we can read the headlines and think, oh my gosh, like I said a couple weeks ago, the Apache helicopter is a locust in Revelation. It's going to happen. We're not doing that. We're doing that so that we can see what does, the, what does the hope of a Christian look like that actually builds resilience? What's a theology of hope that Revelation gives us? That's the vision for this year, live orthodoxy. Friend, I, I hope that you would want the Spirit of God in your life to wake you up, to keep you alive, to move in your heart and give you real love and longing for God. And I hope 
that you would want a theology, of a, a foundation of theology upon which the Spirit of God can actually work. That's what we're seeking this year. Because Seattle needs a church at its best. Seattle needs a church that is alive. But also, the reason we do this, friends, the reason we want to seek to be spiritually vibrant and alive is because Jesus died to give you vibrant life. Jesus did not die just to only assuage your confidence or your conscience. Jesus died on that cross in order to invite you into spiritual life. We want to be alive. How about this? There's there's a passage in, in Revelation where it says, let the lamb receive the reward of his sufferings. I think of that verse all the time right before I come to preach. Let the lamb receive the reward of his sufferings. Christ has suffered, and he is deserving of our spiritual life together. So friends, this year, I'm excited for this year, but because Seattle needs a church at its best, needs a church that is alive, and because Jesus deserves the praises of a church that is alive, let's seek together the Spirit of God as he ignites truth in our hearts in amazing ways this year. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you that you have that your son identified the Holy Spirit as our helper, as our advocate. And Lord, we know that we need a helper. We need someone who will work in us what is pleasing in your sight, that will take the dead bones of our spiritual life and bring renewal piece it back together and then put some breath in it to where it's actually moving again. So God, would you, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? Would you help us to sense our need for him this year? The ways that we need him to empower our work and to keep us spiritually alive. And I pray that that expectation, God, would actually result in real moments and real habits and real consistent times of encountering your presence and being changed by it this year. We need you, Lord. We know that we do, and we know that we can't do anything to bend your arm to come help us, but thanks be to you, God, that you've sent Jesus Christ, who has paid for our sin, so that seeking you, asking you to come help us is no longer a frightening thing, or even a doubtful thing, you will surely help us. You will surely hear us because of the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's to that grace that we attach ourselves and place our hope for new spiritual life. In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. 
For more resources and to find out how you can join with us in gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are his.